<laughs> Hello and welcome to the second episode of the Cody Krillin Calvet podcast. First off, I just want to thank you guys so much. Uh, I had the audacity and the insanity to check the Apple podcast top podcast today. I was just like, there's no chance. There's no way. And I was scrolling, uh, just scrolling down. And at number 51, there's the Palpation Nation logo. So in Canada, this is not in the U.S., there it was sitting, number 51, most recommended podcast, top podcast. I am so incredibly humbled. So for you guys who went and left a review, left me a, an honest review, a five-star review, a four-star, there was a couple one-star reviews. Who are you? I just want to thank you all so much, and I certainly want to keep the momentum going. So if you haven't left a review yet, please, please do so. Uh, if you don't know about like how that ranking works, uh, and certainly there's lots of other podcast platforms out there, but with the, the Apple one, uh, it's predicated on listens and, and reviews. And if you guys could just leave me an honest review, I would be so incredibly appreciative. So I can't believe it. It is crazy. Out of all of the podcasts that are in Canada right now, I'm number 51, which I shared with Diana, and then she went and looked, and it showed that I was 81. So I'm falling fast out of the uh, out of my glory, <laughs> but uh, it was it was great while it lasted, guys. Uh, hopefully, episode two will keep things going, keep that uh, momentum going. I'm just so appreciative. I was. Who, who looks to see if they're on the top charts? That's just ridiculous. But I thought there was just maybe a chance. Just a tiny little chance. Okay. Yesterday and today I had Emerson with me. That's my son. Uh, he was out on calls with me for most of the day. And I just want to tell some stories. So I vlogged yesterday, a portion of the day yesterday at least. And... I'm so sad that you guys only get to see like 0.05% of my life when I put my videos out there because the stuff that you guys miss just breaks my heart. Just like the scene after scene after scene that I see that I could have shared or it, it, it's impossible to share it. I'll talk about that in a, in a second. But yesterday, I, he was amazing. He had play school and then I went and picked him up. And I set him up in my partner's office, who was away, with a pizza, like a Little Caesars pizza, and my iPhone to watch YouTube. And I told him, you stay in this office, unless you're choking, then run out and get Sienna, my vet tech. And he was doing really, really good until my phone rang, and he ran out in a panic, uh, as he always does if my phone rings, because uh, he's always worried I'm going to miss a call. And that kind of derailed things. So I was giving a webinar to my team, my Mosaic Veterinary Partners team. This is a, a practice group that I own. Uh, we have three practices outside of my regular CalVet practice that we own and operate. So he's giving a, a talk, a webinar on beef cattle protocols, going through vaccine protocols and treatment protocols and stuff like that. So I, I had an hour that I was supposed to do this 
And he started popping his head into the door saying that he had to poop while I was giving this podcast or while I was giving this webinar. And then I finally hear him from my office yelling for me to come wipe his butt. So I had to pause the webinar partway through. Sorry, future Emerson, if this is TMI. Partway through and run down to the bathroom. And as I look in Mike's office, the pizza box is laying open. And Phineas, my miniature schnauzer that comes on the road with me everywhere, had pulled a piece of pizza out and was eating it. And there was crumbs everywhere. Just a disaster. So I wiped Emerson's butt and ran back. And I didn't announce what I was doing. I was just like, sorry, guys, I got to run for what second. They, they could hear Emerson in the background, so they knew what I was dealing with. Uh, a couple of them had sent me messages after that he provided much comic relief. Uh, then we went out onto the road. Emerson managed is now to con his way into getting like a side-by-side ATV ride or quad ride or a truck ride, pretty much every call that he goes to. So he conned the cowboy. We were there. Uh, looking at a baby calf that had acidosis and I was hooking it up to IV fluids. He conned the producer to take him on a side-by-side ride to, I think they went and got some water because the calf was hypothermic. And he's just, he's quite the kid. We went and did some post-mortems. He was all gloved up. He's, I gave him a a way too sharp of Leatherman knife and he was in there cutting, uh, cutting cows. And then I had my gimbal with my GoPro on it that I was filming with. And I bribed him with Dairy Queen ice cream that if he could just film me for, for a couple of cows that he would get a Dairy Queen, Dairy Queen ice cream, which he did get. He earned it. He, we did a really good job filming. I can't wait to review the footage. Uh, it was pretty neat to, to have my little cameraman. I can't imagine when, when he's like six or, or, or 16, uh, the, the type of shots we'll be able to get. And then he bossed me around for the last two and said that I had to film him. So then I had to hold it. And he told me, dad, you're not paying attention. Dad, film me, put the camera towards my face. Uh, it was a super late day. He was a trooper. We didn't get finished all of our calls till 9 p.m. He told me at one point, Dad, can we just go fix the live cows and not do any more dead cows for the day? And then today I didn't film. Uh, I had a babysitter for the first part of the day. And then I took Emerson out on the road. And we had stopped at a Hutterite colony. I was uh, I was picking up some lamb, like a, a butchered lamb that I had bought from them. And we had stopped on the side of the road before we had even got to the colony. And he proceeded, because we saw some lambs on the side of the road. So I got him on his car seat and we were looking at the lambs. And then the the, the van pulled up. And this was one of the, the colony bosses. And he had a vehicle full of people. And Emerson went over to him and said, can I get in? So, and the guy like looked at me and I like just nodded. You know, I think it's important to just go along with your kid's social awkwardness and weirdness. So I nodded and he opened up the door and pulled Emerson up into the van and sat him down in the seat. And there was probably like, I don't know, there's probably like 12 people in the van. So I went and talked to the guys at the shop for a little bit. Before picking up my lamb, Emerson showed up and he had had a very fun time. He said he was a little bit shy when I asked him after. And I lost him for a bit at the colony and found him at uh, 
and while he was loading the sheep and I found him out on the swing set by himself. So if you could imagine a little four-year-old boy in shorts uh, by himself swinging back and forth, just moments like that. I wish I could capture, you know, unfortunately at that colony, I'm not allowed to film. Uh, it's, uh, you know, just their own personal decision, which is fine. I completely support. I never expect to, to film video at every single producer's place. Uh, but just like those moments of him asking to get out of the vehicle or to get into their vehicle and go for a ride. And he d didn't know them at all. Uh, he's just a very trusting soul. He's probably the most likely kid to get abducted. That kid trusts anybody. Super stranger danger. Uh, and then just to like round out the day in terms of like the, the visuals that I wish I could capture, but not every not all moments every moment is is appropriate for sure uh, we had to euthanize a horse that had cancer today this was at a, a mennonite feedlot and this horse had been diagnosed uh, by one of my other veterinarians i confirmed diagnosis and recommended euthanasia so emerson i look up uh, after i had put this horse down it it went really well i used a, an injectable barbiturate that's essentially an anesthetic overdose the the horse went down very peacefully uh, his uh, his owner was there and and the owner's daughter was there and she was crying and i look up at emerson and he's walking away hand in hand with one of the pen riders uh, a lady uh, pen rider that i know very well and they're walking towards the horse pen to go look at the horses holding hands. And it was just like a little bit overcast and it was starting to rain a little bit. And Emerson was in his little red shorts. And it's just, you know, it's a super sad moment, but just like a, a vivid moment. Uh, a moment that I covet so much because it's something that I wanna I wanna share with the world. So yeah, that was that was the the last couple of days. So I have a couple of vlogs coming up. Uh, there, I caught some really precious moments for sure. Uh, some good learning. But yeah, Emerson. So today I released a video of a vasectomy, not of my own vasectomy, but although I kind of clickbaited the video that I, uh, I got a vasectomy and then I said, no, wait, I did a vasectomy. So this was in some rams and some sheep. And I just wanted to address a common comment that came up both on Instagram when I was posting on my Instagram stories, but then also when uh, I posted this video as to why would you vasectomize a sheep? And for you guys that don't know what a vasectomy is, that's where you take uh, the, the vas deferens, a portion of the vas deferens that leads from the testicle all the way up into the abdomen uh, that, that drains the, the sperm into the penis. Uh, you take that portion out and that effectively makes the male sterile. So it's common procedure in human medicine. And people were asking, well, why don't you just castrate those rams? So the vasectomy is actually a fairly important technique that we use in veterinary medicine, especially in, in sheep. Uh, when, we, when we do it in rams, um, it makes what, what we call a, a gomer or a teaser ram. So this allows them to keep all of their male characteristics. They have all of their their uh, testosterone, they act just like a ram, but they're sterile. Now, why would we want that? And the main reason is, is what's called the, the ram effect. So essentially what happens is when you turn 
a ram into a pen of ewes, so female sheep, that aren't cycling, uh, it'll synchronize them. So they'll all start ovulating within three days. They'll have a silent heat, and then they'll have uh, two waves of, of uh, not ovulation, but of uh, follicle development, and then they will cycle again all at the same time. So this helps keep uh, lambing season uh, in a very, I guess, sort of tight fashion. So the, the lambing interval is, is really tightened up and you don't have a, a super long lambing season if you are able to exercise the lamb effect, or sorry, the ram effect. Uh, the other thing that the ram effect does is when you turn a ram out into into ewe lambs that are in their transitional phase. So it's not super great at getting uh, younger ewes to cycle, but it certainly does have an effect. So essentially what it is is if you expose a ram to a ewe lamb, so a young ewe that is not cycling yet, she could start cycling quicker. So you can start breeding that group of, that group of sheep quicker as well. So really the vasectomy is just a management tool. Uh, the other option would be to do an epididymectomy, so taking the epididymis off. That's like a, a portion of the spermatic cord right as it exits the testicle. Uh, another great procedure as well. I just learned the vasectomy in vet school, so that's why we chose to do that technique. So that hopefully that provides a little bit of context as to what a vasectomy is. After doing the procedure, now as a as a man who has researched vasectomies on YouTube uh, in human medicine. Uh, it's not a super hard technique. It, it takes about 20 minutes. But man, the human doctors, when you watch those videos on YouTube, they make it look easy. Like, really, you got to give those doctors that do vasectomies props because it's like a tiny little cord and and those doctors, they just whip those vasect those vast differences out like it's nobody's business. So if you're ever getting a vasectomy and it goes really well, thank your doctor and tell him good job. The cow vet said that that's not the easiest procedure to be so great at. Hmm. The other thing that I was thinking about, this came from yesterday as to, you know, some of the things that I censor you guys from. They and I don't know why, and I just wanted to like throw the question or have the conversation around that. Is is what is deemed appropriate and what is deemed not appropriate? So, as you guys could imagine, I'm kind of a jokester. I like to just joke around, and, and certainly I'm professional and I'm good at my job. But I also appreciate uh, the the kind of line of customer service that that being lighthearted within a, a certain environment uh, affords you. So I was thinking about, we, we, Emerson and I were doing a postmortem and there was a cow that was lactating that had died and I wanted to show Emerson where milk came from. So I brought him over to the cow and I had grabbed hold of her teat and I milked her. I milked the dead cow. And the camera was rolling because I was filming the postmortem and the camera was rolling and I just thought to myself, and I've had this thought before, I probably won't show this moment because it seems somewhat inappropriate. Now, I don't know if I'm like somehow sexualizing, um, you know, grabbing a dead cow's teat and milking her. But then I start thinking like, 
at the in the same cow, I'd also grabbed her gallbladder, which was just a huge gallbladder. Uh, part of her disease process was she had fatty liver and she had coleostasis, which means that she had failure to evacuate her gallbladder fully. So her gallbladder was quite dilated. And as I cut it out, I just instinctively, out of interest, just kind of like general anatomy, general biology interest, milked out her gallbladder. Like I squeezed it and then it gall went spraying bile went spraying out and I just did it out of interest sake I just did it out of you know my natural curiosity and I was thinking I would totally show this on film I have showed it on film you know I'm I'm demonstrating the bile duct and I'm demonstrating the consistency of the bile and what the gallbladder does and what it looks like but why do I think that there's there's a problem with showing on video me milking a dead cow, but no problem of me essentially milking a gallbladder. I don't know. Am I the only one that thinks that? If, if you guys want to like reach out to me, send me a message on like Facebook or leave a comment on YouTube or, or send me an email, Cody at CodyKrillman.com. That's my email. Just let me know, like, should I be worried about that? It just, for some reason, it seemed inappropriate when it was a cow's teat to show on video, although that won't stop my behavior because I don't think that it's inappropriate when I'm in the post-mortem pit. Like, sometimes it's diagnostic. I would see a swollen udder uh, on post-mortem, and I would milk her out uh, to some extent to see if she has mastitis. That's a, on my differential list. Uh, if a cow died of septicemia, or endotoxemia from a severe, uh, say, coliform mastitis, I, I use it diagnostically. And, you know, once again, also part of, like, just my general interest in physiology and anatomy and pathology, sometimes I just like milking dead cows. I've also milked a cat before. I mentioned that on Twitter one time and people thought I was really strange. And I don't, I don't know. I don't know if I trust somebody who's never milked a cat before. Like just out of interest sake. I've milked lots of cows and milked pigs before, milked sheep before. What's wrong with milking a cat a little bit? I didn't like milk it out all the way, but I was just interested. Maybe I'm the weird one. I don't know. Hmm. That's, that's deep. We got deep into that conversation. The other thing that came up today that was really interesting was a veterinarian reached out to me and he wanted to know what my recommendation was with remote drug delivery devices. So like dart guns, uh, dart gun, dart guns are becoming extremely popular in the U S and Canada for a method of treatment of specific diseases out on pasture. So essentially you fill up a 10 mil dart. That would be the most common situation. And you put it in this air gun or this gun that fires a 22 shell blanks and you aim it at the cow's neck and you shoot and then it hit, the dart hits and it has a little uh, compression device in there and it injects the antibiotic into the cow. And I posted on my Facebook page a producer who had shared a story where they were using the, the most popular model and they had shot a cow and that dart hit the cow's butt and came back around and caught him like right in the nose. Like, and it lodged in the bone. He even showed the, the x-ray picture, like the radiograph of this 10 mil dart in his nose. 
And all I could think was, thank goodness that wasn't Mycotil. Uh, Mycotil is a macrolide antibiotic that's commonly used in cattle medicine. And Mycotil, this specific macrolide, is cardiotoxic to humans. It's cardiotoxic to rats and pigs and monkeys and stuff like that. Uh, but it, it, it's not as cardiotoxic to cows at the dose that we give them for therapy. So it's a common drug that's used. And if you get injected, I think the, the LD50, the lethal dose, is around, for an average size human, is around 2,000 milligrams. And this stuff is 300 milligrams per mil. So if that thing was loaded with micotil at, uh, at 10 mils, that's a lethal dose. So I posted this, and I think that's what spurred on this veterinarian, and he, he, rec- or he asked me, what is the perfect antibiotic? Now, there's no such thing as the perfect antibiotic. Uh, there's so many different considerations. In this context, the veterinarian was asking the perfect antibiotic for a dart gun, and that, that's a really tricky one. So I told him my recommendation, which is a... a um, a lower medically important antibiotic. Essentially, it's like a, a fancy penicillin. It's ampicillin that that I recommend often for producers to use in the treatment of foot rot and pink eye, two diseases that cattle commonly get out on pasture. Uh, the reason that I like this formulation of, of ampicillin is that you can concentrate it. You mix 41 mils into a bottle of this stuff and you mix it up and you can treat a 1,500 pound animal with 10 mils. So it's like the most concentrated drug. It also has a low withdrawal time and it is labeled for intermuscular injection. Now, the problem is, is usually out on pasture, uh, producers only get one shot. They only get one chance to treat an animal. And this antibiotic specifically is a short-acting antimicrobial. It is supposed to be used in for subsequent days. So for three days, for five days. Actually, on the bottle, it says until resolution of clinical signs. In practicality, even though it is a short acting, the, the organisms are typically wimpy gram negative uh, bacteria. Uh, I remember fondly my pharmacology professor always talking about these, these organisms and saying that they're so wimpy that you could essentially wave a bottle of antibiotics in front of them and that would be enough to treat those animals. So yes, while this is a, a I guess, short-acting antibiotic that is just being used one time, uh, the veterinarian commented after I told him what my typical recommendation was, uh, recommended that uh, maybe this isn't very prudent because it could confer resistance, antimicrobial resistance. And I do agree to an extent. There is no perfect drug when it comes to how we deal with antimicrobial resistance. When we talk about some of the long-acting drugs, typically those are given one time, and we hope that there's this uh, this sustained release of antimicrobials over seven days that, or over several days, that allows the the bacteria to be killed, and that causes uh, a decrease in resistance. The literature out there is very scant when you start looking at what the what the ideal duration of treatment is to minimize resistance when you use antimicrobials. Um, even when you look in in the human literature, how, why do it, why do doctors make recommendations? And I remember listening to a podcast by an infectious disease doctor in Portland, Oregon, 
talking about antibiotic duration and doctor's recommendations. He said that, you know, typically antimicrobials are prescribed for, uh, for five days, seven days, or 14 days. That's kind of what the, the human medical docs do. And he said the rationalization for that is that uh, with the five-day recommendation, it's because doctors have five fingers, so that seems like a nice round number. Uh, if they recommend it for seven days, there's seven days in a week, so that's a nice round number. And if they recommend antibiotics for 14 days, that's like two weeks, so that's a nice round number that we can get our heads around. And his point was there isn't very good evidence for what the most appropriate duration of antimicrobial therapy is. Certainly, I've seen in numerous cases within my practice that, that uh, infections, uh, when treated with short-acting antimicrobials, can often be treated with a single dose. We always recommend going with the label dose on the bottle, but when you're just looking at it from a practical stance, absolutely, there is no doubt that that in some cases, when we're treating some bacteria, that a single dose of short-acting antimicrobials is in fact effective. So then I asked the veterinarian what his recommendation was. Uh, his recommendation was this, this product, this cardiotoxic product that I was talking about, this, this um, mycotil product, uh, which I have issue with. First, I have issue with this product there is a body of evidence out there that exists in the literature that proves that it is not prudent to use with these remote drug de uh, release devices. There was a, a set of work done by a, a veterinarian uh, that I know where it showed that when this product was given that there were significant injections like lesions uh, to the point of when she was doing the serial slaughter work. So essentially you inject the animals with these, uh, with these dark guns and then you, you have animals selected that get euthanized on day 7, day 14, day 21, day 30. That when she was opening up the lesions that that some of these devices had caused, that she was actually able to just pour out raw mycotil product uh, even 30 days out after administration because it's supposed to go subcutaneously, but because we can't control where that drug goes properly, uh, it was going in the muscle and causing injection site lesions. Uh, and then she had to she was able to pour that product out. That doesn't seem very prudent to me either. Uh, we would have a pocket of macrolide antibiotics, which would be in a higher class than the antibiotic that I recommend, uh, meaning more medically important to human medicine. Now, in a pocket of the animal, slowly releasing over a prolonged amount of time, uh, allowing those bacteria ample opportunity to create resistance. So there is no perfect answer when it comes to antimicrobials. When we make treatments, we're looking at efficacy, we're looking at cost, we're looking at things like withdrawal time, we're looking at routes of administration. We're always trying to balance all of those things at once. And there is no perfect situation when it comes to that. It's just a very interesting debate, a long, interesting debate as to, as to what the most appropriate thing was. So the veterinarian was extremely courteous. He thanked me for my time. He did not dispute anything. Uh, I had 
informed him of, of what my recommendation was. I had answered all of his questions. And I just want people to just think about it in general, that, you know, what conventional wisdom may tell you in terms of what antibiotic resistance, uh, how it's caused, may not always be the case. Certainly my gut tells me that when we're using a short-acting antimicrobial for a short duration, that we certainly could be inferring resistance. Uh, but that might not necessarily be the case. That if we start looking at some of those long-acting antimicrobials as well, there's a, certainly a period of time where they're at uh, non-therapeutic doses later in the treatment regimen as that antimicrobial is being metabolized by the animal. There, there's times where it's below that threshold that kills bacteria, and that could potentially confer resistance as well. So it's a super complex uh, situation. All I know is within my practice, we have swabbed hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of calves uh, at branding time and weaning time as they go through uh, processing within the feedlots. When we find them dead in the, in the feedlots, we will swab their lungs. We're looking at different resistance patterns, and there certainly is a ton of antimicrobial resistance out there. And not all the time it's what you think it is. Meaning, in some cases, you're sh completely shocked because producers have very good herd health. They follow protocols to the T, the protocols that I set for them. And then when we swab the calves, we're still seeing these weird resistance patterns to antimicrobials that have never even been on the farm. So it is a very complex issue that I think we just need to think a little bit outside of the box in terms of how best we can control those situations, look towards the literature, look towards things that we can do to, to I guess do research and get more information so we have the best possible understanding of the situation. Okay, that's it for podcast number two. I appreciate it so much, guys, that you are listening to this. Uh, I'm extremely enthused and feeling all all jacked up that that I'm finally doing this. And once again, I just encourage you guys to to share this podcast, to leave a review, and I will see you next time.